When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practised in, la- in the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets and you build their tomb. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. G'day folks, how are you going? Oh, that wasn't very encouraging. G'day folks, how are you going? Um, I think when Benny asked me earlier, you know, what I'm really passionate about, um, I, think, I don't think I gave a very good answer. So what I'm really passionate about um, is, is uh, watching God do his thing with people and watching people get the gospel and then watching the Holy Spirit change people and transform messed up lives, which we all have, into something that looks a little bit less messy. But the reality is it's still a bit messy and will be until we get to heaven. That's what I'm really passionate about. And some of the ways God does that is through preaching and mostly he does it just through his people um, serving each other and loving each other. That's what I really like saying. So I think I should just say that as an answer to the question. Um, How about we pray and um, we'll get stuck into uh, Luke 11. Thanks, Ben. That's all I'm taking off. Um, Father God, thank you so much for your word to us. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are a noisy God. Thank you that you speak loudly to us in creation and we get to uh, look at it and, and marvel at it and wonder at it. And you speak even 
more loudly to us in your word. Uh, So Father, this morning we pray that by your spirit you'd open our ears and our hearts and uh, where there are areas of our lives that need some challenge, Father, we pray that you would give us that challenge this morning in your word. And Lord, where there are areas of our lives where we need some healing and some putting back together, we pray that you'd do that as well. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, it's not an exaggeration, uh, I don't think, to say that Jesus is the most uh, significant person the world's ever known. Uh, our dating system uh, hinges on his birth, or roughly. Uh, all our major holidays centre on Jesus. He's the most, most talked about person in all of history. Uh, more books have been written about Jesus more songs have been sung about Jesus, more paintings have been painted about Jesus than about anybody else in all of history. Uh, And yet instead of all that stuff giving us an accurate picture of who Jesus is, uh, I think our world is perhaps more confused than ever about Jesus' real identity. And the reason for that is there are so many false Jesuses out and about. And because there are so many false Jesuses out and about, the real Jesus is getting harder and harder to spot uh, now, in case you're not sure what I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just flick a few slides up here and you'll sort of, I really hope this doesn't offend you too much, but here's Hippie Jesus. Uh, now, Hippie Jesus uh, was made famous by Bob Marley uh, back in the 70s because Bob really liked the idea of Jesus, but I think he liked marijuana more. And so he figured that the best thing to do was to kind of put marijuana and Jesus together and this is the result, uh, Hippie Jesus. Uh, hippie Jesus doesn't actually exist, by the way, uh, which is... Perhaps a bit of a disappointment for some of you. But anyway, uh, here's the second one. Here's Socialist Jesus. See up there? There's Socialist Jesus. Now, Socialist Jesus is really quite okay with uh, um, welfare dependency and handouts to people who won't work, not people who can't work, but people who won't work. Uh, Socialist Jesus likes gay marriage and same-sex couples adopting little kitties. Uh, And even though Julia Gillard doesn't believe in God, this version of Jesus thinks that Julia Gillard's doing a wonderful job leading our country despite all the evidence to the contrary. Uh, The Greens don't believe in Jesus, but if they did, it'd be this one, uh, but he doesn't exist. Uh, But then neither does this one, because this is capitalist Jesus. And capitalist Jesus wants us all to be rich and exploit the poor and the vulnerable, right? because it's their fault they're poor and vulnerable. Uh, He's a total figment of the imagination, capitalist Jesus, although a surprising number of white middle-class Australians think of this Jesus while they're praying for their lotto numbers to come up so they can pay off their million-dollar mortgage. Uh, Capitalist Jesus is every bit as false as socialist Jesus. And then here's my favourite false Jesus. This one's gun-loving Jesus. Um, This one's great. There's pictures of gun-loving Jesus all over Google. They're awesome. Um, Gun-loving Jesus is very popular with rednecks and hillbillies the world over, from Texas to Mount Isa in Queensland to Ross Arden. Uh, And it's a very scary thought. Uh, But there (laughs) there are people out there who genuinely think that gun loving Jesus is the real Jesus. That's a terrifying thought, I think. And as much as I love guns and shooting stuff, sadly, gun loving Jesus isn't real. But by far the most popular version, false version of Jesus, is girly Jesus. He's this one, right? Now, girly Jesus, you, this is the kind of the standard kind of picture of Jesus that you see anywhere is this dude. How the heck a Middle Eastern Jewish dude from Palestine is blonde with blue eyes? Oh, I don't know. But this is girly Jesus. And girly Jesus makes no demands of anybody, 
Right? Girly Jeans is a really, you know, just a pushover. We have a dog at home, right? Our dog is named Mr Bond. That, it's, this is Mr Bond, the Cavalier King Charles. I know it looks kind of weird that I drive a big four, drive and love shooting stuff and have a Cavalier, but whatever. Mr Bond is perhaps the most timid dog God ever made. This thing is scared of, I don't know, kittens, right? But girly Jesus would be scared of Mr Bond, right? Because girly Jesus is... He's just, he's weak. Weak as what? Uh, he's immensely popular though because girly Jesus never says anything to offend anybody. Right? Uh, he accepts anyone regardless of what they do or say or think uh, and anyone gets to heaven if girly Jesus is in charge. Right? Now we can probably say goodbye to girly Jesus now because he's very distracting. Uh, uh, it seems to me that um, the version of Jesus that we believe in is the one uh, who agrees with us the most. Right? So if you're politically left-leaning, you'll like socialist Jesus. If you're politically right-leaning, you'll like capitalist Jesus. If you want to do what you want to do with no consequences, then you'll like girly Jesus. And the thing is that with all of these Jesuses, all these false Jesuses, there's actually like a little tiny sprinkling of truth. Right? Maybe not so much so with hippie Jesus, because... That doesn't really work. But Jesus does have a massive concern for the poor and the vulnerable. That's all the way through the Gospels. But Jesus also tells us to be really shrewd with our money and work hard to provide for our family and to support Gospel work. Uh, He's merciful and gracious to sinners like you and me. But then he tells us to leave our sinful ways behind. He offers forgiveness to anyone who will come to him And yet he talks about judgment and hell more than anybody in the Bible. So the real Jesus is okay with violence so long as the right people are being hurt. That's meant to be a joke, by the way. You can laugh at that. Um, Up to this point in Luke, um, Jesus has spoken with his disciples about what it means for him to be the Messiah. And he said things like uh, that he came to to serve people, not to be served. He's told the parable of the Good Samaritan who cared for a victim of serious crime and he says to his disciples that that's exactly the same level of compassion that we should have to everyone that we meet. Uh, He's taught his friends to pray. He he gave them the Lord's Prayer. And so he's he's modelled a really clear dependence on God for everything in life. So far, up to this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been gentle and patient. Uh, He's been kind. He's been careful in his words a lot of the time. He's explained things when people have come to him and asked him questions. Uh, He's been gracious and he's been really calm. But all that changes at this point from verse 37 on in Luke 11. Here in the back half of chapter 11, we get to eavesdrop on this conversation that Jesus has between uh, himself and these religious leaders of his day. And here we meet a very different Jesus. This is is the Jesus who's up for a fight, who's who's ready to tear strips off these powerful religious leaders of his day because that's exactly what they deserve. Uh, So in Luke 11, religion is in the crosshairs. And you've got to imagine since Jesus is God, he's a pretty good shot. And he is. Uh, the setting for this part of Luke is uh, a meal at the home of a Pharisee. Uh, so you'll probably know, but 
The Pharisees were the religious elite of their day. Uh, they were the um, they were the fun police, basically. Uh, they were the ones who kind of dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. Uh, they were pedantic. They were anally retentive about the most detailed and obscure parts of the Old Testament law. Uh, there were there's 613 laws in the Old Testament, right? That was quite a few, uh, and the Pharisees knew all of them, and they thought they obeyed all of them as well, and that made them unbelievably self-righteous and arrogant, right? just amazingly so. Uh, and they also they kind of looked down on everybody else who didn't have the same kind of religious intensity in their life uh, as they did. Now, uh, we only read from verse 37 earlier, but this conflict with the Pharisees that we read of here has been kind of brewing for a fair while. Up to this point, you know, Jesus has been doing miracles and he's been preaching and he's been all that sort of stuff all over the place and the Pharisees noticed. And they were, all, they were a bit sus about Jesus. You know, because he didn't go to their religious schools. They had no idea where he'd got all his knowledge from. They didn't know. Um, he was, you know, from a strange sort of place where, where no one kind of important had come from before. He was saying things about God that no one had ever said before. And so they were, they were very, very suspicious. Uh, it's been simmering away, this, this conflict, but here it just erupts. And Jesus is on the attack. This is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus calling a spade a spade and doing all but using some builder's words. And the Pharisees and the scribes have a, a very serious problem. Their religion is false. Right? That's their problem. Their, religious is, their religion is false and it's hollow and it's destructive and Jesus just destroys them here. He smashes them to pieces. I can't think of anything else in the whole of the Bible that, where Jesus says anything as confronting as this stuff. So he sits down for a meal at this Pharisee's house in verse 37-38 there. He sits down for this meal and he doesn't wash his hands. That's how it starts, right? And you think, oh, yeah, big deal. But Jesus does this on purpose. Okay? He's, he is picking a fight. He is doing this intentionally because he knows the Pharisee is going to notice because that's what Pharisees do. Right? Re- religious people notice when you don't do their religious things. Right? And so Jesus just walks in, doesn't wash his hands, uh, sits down and he's about to get stuck into the meal uh, and the Pharisee looks at Jesus with surprise and, and you, you kind of, I don't know, it sort of sounds a bit like he's you know, a bit of a judgmental roll of the eyes. You know when people do that kind of, uh, you're from Hobart. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that kind of a, that sort of thing, right? Sorry if you're from Hobart. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but this Pharisee, you know, he's a bit of a roll of the eyes. Ah, oh, you didn't wash your hands and you expect us to think that you're from God. Really? Goodness. <laughs> and Jesus should probably ignore this, uh, sort of, you know, this look from the Pharisee and say something nice. Because if you're in someone's home for a meal, that's traditionally a good thing to say, isn't it? Oh, gosh, I love what you've done with the place. It's Lovely, isn't it? Uh, uh, but instead, here's Jesus' opening line, okay? Verse 39. This is his opening line at the dinner conversation, right? Now then, you Pharisees, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, you're full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what's inside of you, you be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. That's his opening line. You suck. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Oh, welcome. Gee, thanks for coming, Jesus. Glad you dropped by. Uh, This false religion is garbage. It's it's dirty, filthy rubbish. 
See, it says that the cups and plates have to be cleaned and washed in special holy water. And the problem is that while the outside then looks clean, the inside is actually filthy. It's a, it's a metaphor, right? Jesus is saying that these Pharisees, they look clean on the outside. Right? Because they're wearing all their Pharisaical garb and they look good, but on the inside their relationship with God is hollow. And it's hollow because they're full of greed and wickedness. And that's the stuff that needs to get washed away. And the remedy, he says, is for them to be generous to the poor. Right? The, about the last part of any of us to get converted is our wallet. Right? You, you, can, you can kind of tell how people are going in their Christian life with how generous they are with their money. That's what Jesus is saying. And this idea comes up often in Luke. How people treat the poor is kind of a gauge on how they're going with God. And here this Pharisee is religious but it's a false religion and it's proved by his stinginess to the poor. And remember, this is, this is the first thing, Jesus. This is his opening line. Okay? This is like getting to a range with your rifle and just throwing one down the range just to kind of get a bit of a sighter. So now he's going to dial in his crosshairs a little bit and he's going to get much more accurate. So here's three more rounds at the Pharisees and then he'll have, another, he'll have a go again in a bit with the scribes. But here's the Pharisees, three more shots. The first one hits hypocrisy, the second one hits pride and the third one hits maggot-riddled, decaying corpses. Right, so this is some pretty heavy gear. Have a look at verse 42. <clears throat> Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue and your other garden herbs. Who grows rue here? No, see, no one. Okay, so I have an idea that when we read this in this language, we kind of don't quite get it. Uh, I haven't heard anyone say woe to you for quite some time. Uh, I was down at the, the youth convention there the other week and uh, I didn't hear any of the teenagers say, woe to you, um, which would have been kind of weird if they did. Um, we did the men's conference here yesterday and even though I was preaching, I didn't hear anyone say, woe to you, Steve. Uh, um, so I think... Uh, woe to you doesn't quite connect with us. So uh, we'll give this a bit of a 21st century vibe. Okay, Stick with me. Uh, a few years ago a guy called Eugene Peterson uh, did another translation of the New Testament. Uh, it's called The Message. Some of you will have heard of this. Um, I've never preached out of The Message before. Usually I just use an NIV. But I actually think The Message is quite helpful sometimes because I think sometimes we read the Bible and the language kind of is a bit of a barrier to us because we don't often speak like this and I think the message sometimes can actually be really useful. It's also quite fun to read because you think, oh really, is that what it sounded like? Oh cool, okay. So I'm going to read the next bit from the message. Now in case you're sort of sitting there rolling your eyes thinking, using the message to preach from? If you think that, be very careful because that sounds a little bit like something a Pharisee might say. Just, just a thought. So here's, here's the message, verse 42. Here's what it would have sounded like. Jesus says, oh, I've had it with you. <laughs> You're hopeless, you Pharisees. Frauds! You keep meticulous account books, tithing on every nickel and dime you get, but you manage to find loopholes for getting around basic matters of justice and God's love. Careful bookkeeping is commendable, but gee, the basics, you need to get them right. They're required. That's hypocrisy. Here's what it would have sounded like with pride. You're hopeless, you Pharisees. Frauds! You love sitting at the head table at church dinners. We've all been to those church dinners, haven't we? And that kind of makes it a bit more real, doesn't it? We like sitting at the head table at church dinners, don't we? You love preening yourselves in the radiance of public flattery. That's pride. 
Here's death. Frauds, you're just like unmarked graves. People walk over that nice grassy surface, never suspecting the rot and corruption that's six feet under. Death. That's how the Pharisees would have heard what Jesus said. And then you think, oh, that's why they crucified him. Okay, fair enough. It's quite a big group of people sitting at this table and Jesus has just managed to offend half of them. (laughs) They're hypocrites. They're proud and they're dead. Right? They do they say one thing, but then they go and do another. And they think they're the answer to the world's problems, but actually they're the they're the problem. They think they're solution, they're the solution, but they're actually the problem. They're rotting corpses, they're stinking the place up. That's what false religion looks like. That's what it smells like. How many people do you reckon have left churches because of the hypocrisy they see in the system or the leaders? Just cast your mind back over the last however many years, for some of you, might be 50, 60, 70 years. How many people do you think have left because of the hypocrisy they see in the leaders or the system? You know, I was, um, I was speaking with a bunch of atheists a while back online, the, the Australian Atheist Foundation or Forum or something. I got online with these blokes and started having a crack with them and um, didn't really get very far, but it was fun. And um, I, I was amazed at how many of them had been Christians um, who left churches because of the hypocrisy they saw in their leaders. And for certain, they made their own decisions along the way, you know, that kind of got them further and further away, but, uh, but the rot started with hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrisy is not a very good thing, but the arrogant, self-righteous pride thing, I think, is probably worse. See, so many people leave churches because they end up feeling they can't actually be honest about their failings and their sin. Uh, they feel judged and looked down on, um, like they're the only one in the group who struggles. Um, arrogant, self-righteous pride, I suspect, is something, that me- is something that many of us need to repent of. I do. See, theologically, I come from the kind of conservative, reformed, evangelical end of the spectrum, Um, which my guess is most of you guys come from that same sort of spot as well. And our team does a lot of things well, but this is probably our worst sin, I think. Self-righteous pride. Now, I haven't come here with an agenda, I just figured this would be a good thing to preach on, but I wonder if those of us on this conservative, reformed, evangelical side of the spectrum need to ask ourselves a few hard questions about this issue. See, I think one of the reasons that so many people find it hard to fit into our churches is that most of us, and not all of us, but most of us, you know we put on that, that, the church face, the, the front, where um, everything sort of seems quite perfect. You know, we don't express any doubts about the Bible or about Jesus or our, our, our walk with God. Um, we don't really talk much about our struggle with sin, our marriage is fine, our kids aren't insane. Um, (laughs) The car park miracle. You know, you could be having the worst blue in the world, you know, on Hobart Road, but by the time you pull up here, sweet as a nut. (laughs) You know, and we all, most of us do it. I've done it plenty of times. Um, and, and, And things on the outside really look as if they're going well and I think when new people turn up to our churches, that's what they see, that the perfect kind of veneer. 
uh, and after a while I think it just gets overwhelming because they can't live up to that. They kind of don't fit in. And, and the reality is that's not really how we're going either. But the thing is we're too proud to let our guard down. We're too proud to actually be honest with each other about how we're going. And so the wounded and the searching and the lost, um, the people who could really use a, a good solid church to call home, after a while they kind of figure they just can't cut it and so they leave. And it's a vicious circle, isn't it? Because those of you who don't let your guard down with each other, the reality is most of you guys are doing it pretty tough as well. But you know that in our circles, honesty is usually seen as weakness. That's how it goes. And so you don't tell the truth to each other very often and you don't go and talk to your pastor until it's usually too late. And so you battle on and you barely keep your head out of water, hanging on for dear life, while on the inside you're dying slowly. This is where false religion always goes. Always. See, false religion's deadly. Uh, please don't let it squeeze the life out of you. Uh, maybe if more of us ditched our pride, we would find that church wasn't a finishing school for the almost perfect, but instead was a hospital for the lame and the broken and the weak. Um, for all that though, religion isn't actually a bad thing. See, James tells us that the kind of religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Uh, in Malachi 6, back in the Old Testament, God tells us what he wants us to do. To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. So it's not rocket science, is it, really? If you love God, your life will reflect his love. You'll look after the poor and the vulnerable, you'll seek justice, you'll love mercy and you'll be humble. And if you think of what those things sound like and look like, it doesn't take long to figure that those things are the exact opposite of the Pharisees and their false religion. They're not humble, they don't like mercy, they don't like justice, they're the opposite. And that's why Jesus just smacked them out there. But there's another group of people at this uh, dinner party and that's the scribes. And the scribes used to hang out with the Pharisees. Uh, they were the real experts in the law. Whenever there was any confusion about the law, the, the Pharisees called in the scribes because they were the lawyers. They were religious and lawyers so they're twice condemned, I think. Uh, if, if ever there was... Sorry if there's any lawyers here. Uh, actually, no, I'm not. Uh, if ever there was any confusion you know, with the laws, the, 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 Pharise- the scribes would come in and they'd go, well, give a bit of a ruling, here's you know, law number 497A, this is how that works, uh, blah, blah, blah. Right? One of these scribes here speaks up in verse 45 and he says, a typical lawyer, right? this is exactly what lawyers sound like, now look Jesus, you know, when you say that sort of thing about the Pharisees, well look it almost sounds like you're... You could be saying it about us as well. And in future, we'd all, we scribes would like it if you would be a little bit more careful with your comments. Thank you very much. And so Jesus says, you keep, so, you keep talking, Mr Religious Scholar, I'm reloading. <laughs> and uh, away he goes. He's, uh, he's just shut up the Pharisees 
And so he's put a few more rounds in the chamber and here he goes at the scribes. There's three more targets. We'll just go through them quickly. They never preach grace, these scribes. They killed the prophets and they keep people out of God's kingdom. So look at verse 46 again. This is the message. You're hopeless, you religious scholars. You load people down with rules and regulations, nearly breaking their backs, but you never lift a finger to help. No grace. They're killers, right? You're hopeless. You build tombs for the prophets that your ancestors killed. And the tombs that you build are actually monuments to your murdering ancestors more than they are to the murdered prophets. Right? They're killers. You're hopeless, you religious scholars. You took the key of knowledge, but instead of unlocking the doors, you locked them. You won't go in yourself and you won't let anyone else go in either. Right, they keep people out of God's kingdom. So the religious lawyers, they're all about legalism and not grace. They're murderers. Right? Their forefathers killed the Old Testament prophets and these, guys are, these are the guys that make sure Jesus dies as well. That's them. But the last one pretty much sums up everything Jesus says at this dinner party. These religious leaders have the keys to the, to the kingdom of God. They know the scriptures inside out And instead of unlocking the doors to God's kingdom and opening them wide, they've shut them up tight so that no one can get in. And Jesus says, you're not even going to get in yourself. But you know the saddest thing about these guys is that they actually thought they were doing the right thing. At this point, they're not malicious. They're not running about the place thinking, how can we best offend God? They're thinking, how can we best honour God? And they think they're doing the right thing. But their religion has sucked out all their joy of life. It's sucked away all their compassion and all their grace. And and that's what religion always does. See, religion gives you a long list of rules to follow. It says, here, do this. And and when when, when you turn Christianity into a religion, only one of two things can happen, okay? You follow all the rules or you think you follow all the rules. And that makes you unbelievably arrogant and self-righteous and you're a flippin' nightmare to everybody else. Those kind of people just annoy the daylights out of me. That's one option. The second thing that can happen is you look at all the rules and you think, crikey, I'm hopeless. Can't keep any of them. And that just makes you depressed and guilty. And after a while, you'll hang around in church for a while, but after a bit you just think, you know what, I just can't do it. I'm too tired. You leave. That's what false religion does. Any time you turn Christianity into religion, those are the only two things that happen. And they both end in spiritual death. This is the harshest stuff Jesus says in the Bible, but it's life and death stuff. these, These religious leaders he's talking to, these guys are supposed to be the shepherds of God's people. They're supposed to look at God's people with compassion and care and love and give them spiritual food and water. They're supposed to keep God's people safe, from anything or anyone that might do them harm. But Jesus says here the shepherds have become the wolves. And the sheep are now in danger. You know, Martin Luther said it like this. He says, you can never be too gentle with the sheep and you can never be too harsh with the wolves. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's exactly this. Now notice this. This is really important. Jesus never ever speaks like this to regular people. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus speak like this to regular people, to sheep. When the woman is caught in adultery and dragged out into the town square, probably you know, just draped in a sheet or something like that, the crowd gathers to put her to death. You remember this? 
Jesus walks in and he says, just hang on a second. Those of you who are without sin, you can throw the first rock. And one by one they all leave. Jesus goes over, helps the woman to her feet and tells her that from that point on she's to leave her life of sin because sinful sheep need grace and they need mercy and they need a second chance. When the fellows brought their crippled mate to Jesus and lowered him through that hole in the roof, Jesus had compassion on him and fixed his legs because sheep with broken legs need to be able to walk. When his friend Lazarus lay dead in that tomb and all his family and friends are standing outside the tomb and they're all bawling their eyes out, Jesus stands there and weeps with them and then he calls Lazarus out because dead sheep need new life. When people came to him wanting to know God, Jesus just met them exactly where they were. Anybody who rocked up to Jesus with a question got an answer. All sorts of people heard the good news. didn't matter who they were. Jesus opened the way to the kingdom of God because because lost sheep need a map. Now in John 10, Jesus tells us he's the good shepherd and we're his sheep. And he tells us that that the good shepherd cares for his sheep. He he provides us with good food and water and then when we wander off, he brings us back. He's gentle with us because he knows how frail and weak we are. But when the wolves come near, right, and they're, they're here in Luke 11, all that gentleness vanishes. You know, he flexes his muscles. You've got to remember, he's a tradie. He's been swinging a hammer for the past 20 odd years. So he's, he's, you know, he's got some biceps. He starts swinging and he doesn't miss. See, because with sheep you can't be too gentle, but when the wolves turn up you can't be too severe. So where's, where's this bit of Luke hit us? It's one thing to kind of look at this and say, okay, that's what it meant back there. Where does it hit us? I actually think this bit of Luke kind of hits us about here. Hits us right between the eyes. When we worked back in uh, North Launceston, I remember, actually it might have been Longford, but I remember when we turned up here, I met a bunch of other Anglican ministers from Tassie. And, you know, I introduced myself and the blokes, they all seemed all nice and everything, and they asked me where I was from, and I said, Sydney? Everything changed. (laughs) Right? And one of them said, oh, you're a Pharisee. Truly. And, and I was like, you're what? I was really offended. You know, I was like, how dare you? A Pharisee, that's not my team. <laughs> that's the bad guys. <laughs> and that was about 10 years ago, right? And over the past 10 years, I've had a bit of a think about it. And this dude was actually wrong about a whole lot of things. But as confronting as it is, I think he's actually got a point with the Pharisee thing. Um, you see the big danger for those of us on the kind of conservative, reformed, evangelical end of things is that all the stuff that Jesus says to the Pharisees could pretty easily be said to you and me. And so while you're sitting here looking, you know, reading Luke 11 and you, you know, you're sort of, you go, go Jesus, go, yeah, hit him again, hit him again. Just be a bit careful because he might be hitting us. <laughs> uh, the academic standard in our Bible colleges uh, is immense. You know, more an SMBC in Sydney, the Presbyterian College up there, the Reform College in, in uh, Melbourne, I think it is. And there's another one in Brisbane, I think, too. They're, the standard in those places is, is spectacular. Really, really good stuff, really solid. And yet, and yet, despite our immense knowledge, our reputation is one of arrogance and pride. It's not mercy or justice or humility. 
and that should cut us to the heart. So the Pharisees knew their Bibles backwards and forwards and sideways and inside out. They could most likely recite most of it off by heart. And because they knew the word so well, Jesus expected much from them and got nothing and so he tore them to pieces. And I wonder if he expects the same of us. And as he's expecting the same of us, I wonder if he finds it. And then when he doesn't find it, I wonder if he'd say the same sort of thing to us. So you think of all the things that Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees here and then we need to ask ourselves those same questions. Are we hypocrites? Are we proud? Are we spiritually dead but we think we're alive? Are we legalistic rather than all about grace? Do we kill each other with our labels and our suspicions and our fears and our backstabbing? But the bottom line is we have the keys to the kingdom of God. Have we locked the door or have we flung it wide open? A couple of years ago, a guy called Mark Driscoll was in Sydney. He's a preacher from the States. Some of you will have heard of Mark. And he was here for about three weeks. And just before he left, the day before he left, he, uh, he gave a few talks uh, in the Anglican Cathedral up in Sydney to about 700 Sydney Anglican clergy and um, I was sitting there and listening to him and it was, it was a terrific day actually. Um, in the last talk he gave, he started by saying that he'd been there for a few weeks and he'd been talking to a whole bunch of people and he's quite an insightful bloke, Mark, as well. And, uh, and so he said he's going to... And he was like the flavour of the month at the time. Everyone loved him. Everyone thought he was fantastic. Um, and so he said, I'm going to cash in all my chips and I'm going to tell you the 18 things that you guys are doing wrong that it's really stopping the gospel having its best impact and so then for the next about 45 minutes he just went from 1 to 18 telling us all the things we're doing wrong and you can still find it online it's a ripper talk actually if you, it's a good kind of a, you want to take the temperature of how your church is going this is a good talk to listen to um, just google Mark Driscoll 18 point Sydney and it'll be the first thing that comes up and um, not everything he says will apply to where you guys are at um, it was a very brave thing to do I thought and personally, I actually thought he was right on just about all of them, I think. Um, but, and here's the but, um, the guys who run our denomination back home, who are my brothers, who I look up to with immense respect, um, you know, who, who are genuinely great men of God, Within a week of Mark leaving Sydney, our guys decided that he was no longer to be trusted and would never be asked back to preach again. And that sounds a lot like something a Pharisee might do. Uh, and it was, it was really gutting, actually. It was a terrible thing. Now, that's, that's just my denomination. It's, it's like yours. It's got plenty of flaws, even though your denomination just is one church. Um, we've all got flaws. What about us individually? So what about you and me? Because I reckon there's an... Well, I think we all have an inner Pharisee. A little Jewish bloke in the back there just, just chatting away in the background. Uh, and we often ignore him, but he's there somewhere. And so I, I, we'll play a little game for the next couple of minutes and then I'll finish up. And the game is called You Know You're a Pharisee When... Dot, dot, dot. Okay, so I'll give you a few little, uh, little uh, scenarios. Uh, you know you're a Pharisee and I'll try and offend all of you. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> You know you're a Pharisee 
when you make a big deal of what you think about creation. So you might be a, a literal seven day creationist uh, and you think the earth is six or seven thousand years old or you might be uh, one of those people who think that the beginning of Genesis isn't a science textbook and it kind of gives us the big picture of God did it and why but doesn't tell us how or how long it took or whatever. And you might think the earth is 15 billion years old or whatever. But you know you're a Pharisee when the position you hold on creation is the only position to hold. right? And if you're a six-day man or woman, you think that your billions of years old universe friends who are Christians might actually not be saved because <laughs> they don't really believe the Bible because it says it there in black and white. It's actually in English, not in Hebrew, and it's much different in Hebrew. And that's what these guys think. They think, hey, the earth's 15 billion years old. You're just dumb. <laughs> that's when you know you're a Pharisee, when you think your position is right. You know you're a Pharisee when you make a big deal about contraception. Right? The Bible doesn't say a whole heap about it, but maybe you've got a strong opinion on what's right and wrong. And so the pill, condoms, the rhythm method, or you just kind of have a crack and see what happens. Right? Uh, whatever your opinion is, when you start getting all legalistic about it and telling other people that they should do what you do because that's right, that's the little Pharisee going, I'm here. <laughs> right? Or maybe it's your politics. You know you're a Pharisee when you vote left and you think all your Christian friends who vote right are heartless capitalists who don't get the social implications of the gospel. And so you judge them. That's what, you know you're a Pharisee then. But on the other hand, you know you're a Pharisee when you vote liberal and you think that all your Christian mates who vote Labor really haven't thought through the issues very clearly at all. Secretly they vote Green and they're in favour of gay marriage. They just might not be Christians. Right? That's when you know you're a Pharisee. One more, because this will be sure to get you. Maybe it's the school you go to or the school you send your kids to. Right? You know you're a Pharisee when you think that only really serious Christians send their kids to the Christian school. Right? All the others who go to grammar or scotch or, heaven forbid, a state school, well, they're not really that committed to Jesus, are they? But it goes the other way as well. See, if you're, you know you're a Pharisee when you send your kids to the state school and you think you're the only ones trying to seek and save the lost from the godless state system. We're on the front line and you guys are all over here in your safe little Christian little, what's the word? Enclave. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Yeah? But that's when you know you're a Pharisee. Or if you go to grammar, it's probably worse because you don't really care where anyone else goes. You know they're all going to work for you in the end anyway. So <laughs> you, you, you know, you're, you're bound to be a Pharisee then. So there we go. Uh, I think I've offended everybody with that. Um, you see, the problem for us is that we know too much. And our churches aren't perfect, but they're solid. You guys have a long history of Bible teaching. Right? If you've been around here for a little while, you've got a long history of good Bible teaching. And I met Carl yesterday. My guess is if he sticks around for 20 years, you're going to have another 20 years of it. Right? It's a dangerous thing to have good Bible teaching. Because if you've got it, Jesus expects a lot from you. Right? And that worries me. Because you and I know a fair bit. We have the keys to the kingdom. We understand the gospel. But has it changed our lives? Or are we just so comfortably religious that we're numb and we've locked the door? One of the churches that Nadia and I first worked in was in a tiny little country area. 
There are about 12 people in the congregation on a chocker's day. Um, and, and Nani and I were given the responsibility of looking after these people, probably because no one thought we could do any harm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so Nani started a Sunday school and uh, um, I uh, preached on Jonah. Uh, I can't remember. They used a lectionary, but I tossed that out the door and figured we'd start with Jonah. And uh, I realised after only a week or two that, that this church had never, ever had a whole book of the Bible preached through from beginning to end. Never. Some of these guys have been in church 70 years and they'd never heard a book kind of preached all the way through. And so after two weeks of Jonah, they, um, they got really excited about it, right? And so they, a bunch of them had plans to do other things. The next week they rang up and changed all their plans so they could come back to church and hear the next bit of Jonah. And they started inviting some of their friends to church. They'd never invited people to church ever in their lives. They started inviting their friends to church. This is Jonah. Right? This is not breaking new ground. Like, let's, let's be honest about it. This is, not, you know, this is not really anything huge, but it was for these people. And pretty soon, I think we did Galatians next, and there was like about 30 people in church. And the Sunday school kind of started to grow a little bit. And, and halfway through Galatians, or by the end of it, there was more. There was like 40, 50 odd people in church. And it didn't take very long. And it kind of got a bit out of control because these people had never heard anything like it. Now, Here's what was happening. Because I tell you, it had absolutely nothing to do with me. What was happening was that these people started to get an idea of what God was like. Right? And they saw it consistently. And as their knowledge of God's character grew and they got to know the real Jesus, not any of the false, rubbish, fake Jesuses that they'd been presented with for the last 70 years, they understood the gospel for the first time and God's spirit showed up and changed their hearts and changed their lives. It was all so new to them. They were so excited. Can you imagine putting something off to be in church? Really? Yeah, some of us can, but some of us, yeah, reality is no. (laughs) They asked their neighbours, they asked their friends, because knowledge changed their hearts and changed their actions. They'd been given the keys to the kingdom of God and they wanted to fling the doors wide open. Guys, let's make sure religion doesn't kill our passion and joy for Jesus. We need to make sure we keep the doors to the kingdom open wide and not shut them up. Because lost sheep need grace and mercy. We need grace and mercy. How about we pray?